Luke 14. Luke 14. There's a Bible there somewhere in your pew there in front front of you, if you don't have one. Luke 14, kingdom etiquette. Etiquette, we all pretty much understand the word, that customary code, that polite behavior that we exhibit in society for meals and the way we handle particular things in our group settings. There's also that when it comes to the kingdom of God. There's rules. There, are, there is an order to God's work. There's things that should be understood and an understanding that should grip our hearts. As it's, I'm not sure who to attribute this quote to, but it's a good one in regards to etiquette and manners. Manners are a sense of awareness of the feelings of others. If you have that awareness, you have good manners, no matter which fork you use. And you know, in regards to our context here, Jesus is on his route to Jerusalem. This will be his last Passover that he will celebrate with the disciples. And having just driven from Galilee to Jerusalem, it's about 117 kilometers or about 71 miles or so. It'd be like driving from here to uh, Gastonia uh, near um, Charlotte. Now, if you can imagine walking that distance, it's about a two and a half hour drive uh, through the curves and all. So it takes a while to drive it. Could you imagine walking it, caravanning together with groups of families and people? It's just, uh, they made their sojourn, their, their little trip three times a year to appear before the Lord. And um, that walk from Jericho uh, up to Jerusalem, it's one thing to take it in a car, it's be quite another to walk it. And then when they say go up to Jerusalem, there, there's a reason why they say it that way, because it's an elevated beauty. And so... The etiquette of the kingdom was something that should have been known by the nation of Israel. They were God's uh, chosen people. They were instructed beautifully uh, to have an understanding on how to worship Yahweh, how to come into his presence, how to deal with sin, how to deal with defilement in their lives, and the various rituals that allowed them to be purified so that they could come into Yahweh's house and eat with him and enjoy uh, the kingdom of God. They looked forward to it when it would be more permanent, a day when the Messiah would come and restore the nation back to where their enemies would be under their feet and they would be the head and not the tail. And Jesus came to restore that. He came as the Messiah. That was really the announcement beginning with John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus coming out of the wilderness, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent, turn. Get your heart right and make yourself ready for the coming of the Lord. And these were the messages that was, were being received at this time. As we pick up this story here, Jesus is on his way up to Jerusalem. He's stopping at synagogues along the way. Uh, the crowds are gathering. It's a huge move of God as they move in that direction. And he runs into uh, the Pharisees uh, who lived at various places. He's invited uh, to eat once again here. And we'll pick it up here in verse 1 of chapter 14. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath that they watched him closely. 
And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will he not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. One of the first things that we uh, should be understood when it comes to the kingdom and etiquette in the kingdom is there are priorities. The priority is not necessarily the care for animals, but the meeting of the needs of humanity. That was the primary function of the priesthood and of the leadership. They were there to meet the spiritual needs of the people, to guide them to an understanding of what God required of them so that they could enjoy fellowship with God. The primary role of the Pharisees would be to instruct the people and to love the people and show them and demonstrate the mercy and love of God. And they failed on all those points. They actually turned it into a religion and began to lord it over the people as we're aware. And uh, when the law is used as a weapon, they weaponize the scriptures, if you will, against the people. Uh, going by the letter of the law rather than interpreting the spirit of the law, which is always based in love. Animals became more important than people. You know, living by the law is blinding. Uh, you, when a person cannot see beyond what is written to interpret the spirit of the law, um, legalism sets in. It's, we all are aware of legalism. We don't like it. We can feel it. It's the assumption that people need to obey the law in order to be acceptable, acceptable to God. And so when you begin to think that way, your thinking is skewed. You begin to think because you are obeying all the rules that God's now on your side and you have the right to require that of everybody else around you. And so you notice the phrase there, they watched him closely. What's Jesus going to do this time, you know? See, Jesus, they knew him, probably knew his behavior probably a little bit better even than his disciples at this time. They, no doubt this guy was set there by the door. It, it's a dropsy, it's edema. Uh, it's when you, your, your body get, begins to retain fluid and you, uh, your ability to grasp things and, and hold things, your strength is compromised. And so this fellow is suffering. And we'll, let's just set him in front of the door here because we know when Jesus comes through, he's going to see him. And when he sees him, he's going to do something on the Sabbath that we know is wrong. And then we'll have something that we can accuse him for about. This is what uh, is reflected in Mark chapter 3. They were watching him that they might accuse him. There's a terrible mindset to be legalistic like that. Um, we know the truth. Those of us who have received Christ and received grace know that uh, we're no longer walking under the law, but we live by grace. That doesn't mean there's not discipline and, and uh, responsibility to keep ourselves in the right place, the right frame of mind, keep ourselves in the love of God and uh, keep ourselves from being defiled, but it's not a legalistic relationship. We're, our 
Walk with God is not performance-based. That's not how we get saved. As Dr. Heiser so eloquently put, what we cannot gain through moral excellence, we cannot lose by moral failure. We no longer relate to God on the basis of performance. We relate to him on the basis of forgiveness through the blood of Christ. God knows that we're going to make mistakes. He knows that we're going to fall. We're going to become angry. We're going to do things that we will regret. But that is all under the blood through confession and forsaking it in acknowledging. doesn't mean I don't have to apologize when I stomp on somebody's feelings or I cross the line and hurt someone. I'm responsible to do that. But I no longer um, am bound by the law in that regard. I'm bound by a higher law. The law of love. True acceptance with God comes through faith alone, apart from works. It's based in love. It's faith and grace working through the love of God. It's not the force of the letter that we lay upon people. And this is what Paul was communicating to the church in Rome. Romans 3.20 said, For by works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight since the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's the purpose of the law, to show us what's right and wrong. And when we're wrong, we simply admit it. Romans 3.28, for we hold that no one, or that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. God has made it so simple, so easy to become a believer. God is almost like looking for any way that he can let people off the hook, if you will. All we have to do is ask for forgiveness. And when we do that in sincerity, God makes himself real to us. You can pray that in your own way. Father, please forgive my sins. And he will come to you by the power of his spirit and he will relieve you of that guilt. He's faithful. I actually think that this spirit of legalism comes to failure because none of us can keep the law, can we? We don't do it well. And if we uh, fail to be humbled by our mistakes and our failures, uh, we'll end up compromising and seek to justify ourselves and in the end we'll become self-righteous hypocrites. This is exactly what happened to the Pharisees. They thought in just knowing the scriptures, they were right with God. I mean, Jesus straightened them out on that. You think that having the scriptures, that you are comfortable, you know, but they are they which speak of me, Jesus said. And so when you really know the scriptures, you'll see the Lord himself. Actually, when we are humbled by our failures and we repent and turn to him, we actually begin to taste the grace of God. And we're never the same. The beautiful transformation begins to take place. We no longer are striving to be acceptable by God. We're accepted because we believe on what Jesus did for us. And that transformation of grace never ends. It goes on and on and on. God's grace can never be exhausted. And in fact, I think the thing that needs to happen is that we need to be amazed at the grace of God. And I look out over the congregation, I look at humanity, and I'm amazed at God's mercy and grace. Why hasn't he come and judged? 
because he's kind and gracious and patient? How is it that he can put up with me and you when we continually do things that we wish we wouldn't do, but we some, somehow just can't seem to help ourselves on occasion? He's kind and he's gracious. He's made provisions for it. When we consider all our faults, our warts, and all our blemishes, God loves us so completely. Never doubt that. Never doubt that. If you hear a whisper in your ear contrary to that, it is not the voice of God. It is the voice of the enemy that would seek to steal away God's grace and his love from your heart. We don't live performance-based lives like that. When we receive grace, it becomes the turning point in our lives when we really begin to understand the grace of God. The thing about a critical spirit is that it is an obsessive attitude of criticism and fault-finding, and it is the most unbearable thing to, to be around, to feel like you are being judged and looked at and condemned regularly. It, it tears you down. It doesn't build you up. Now, there's a difference between uh, destructive criticism and constructive feedback. You know, if, we're, if we have constructive criticism, that is to be done gently and in love. We're to speak the truth in love. We're trying to help people better themselves and to uh, be right. You know, Romans 14.10 uh, tells us not to tear down our fellow brothers and be critical in, in judging them. This is what it says. It actually says, by, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God so that each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block to cause a brother to fall in the way. This is what we're about. We're about loving one another and building one another up. If your brother offends you, go to your brother and tell him about it, work it out with him. That's is how we maintain the unity within the church and within the body of Christ. We are warned about offending people unnecessarily and being mean-spirited and critical. Matthew 18, 6 says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of sea. One of the worst things we can do to someone is to set a stumbling block before them and injure God's people. But on the other hand, we have to be honest with ourselves. We, tie to, we tend to judge others by their actions, and how do we judge ourselves? By our intentions, <laughs> unfortunately. I know what you were up to, you know. <laughs> you know. The truth is we really can't judge ourselves or anyone else because we don't have the ability to comprehend the depths of someone else's heart. We don't even know our own heart in that regard. We don't know the motivations. God help us. We should be content actually to just judge ourselves and bring our own lives in alignment with God's word. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, a corrective epistle, He's encouraging them in the words in chapter 11, verses 31 and 32, for if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we 
are judged. We are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Isn't that an amazing thing? We have the Word of God. If we will allow the Word of God to come in and be, as it were, a mirror to show us exactly who we are and what we are before God and admit who we are, He'll take it away from us and He'll restore us to the image that He wants us to be. That is to be just like Him. See, that's one of the hardest things for a man and a mankind to do is to confess, to admit that pride just seems to get in the way. But this is the principle in the scriptures. When Jacob was wrestling with the angel of the Lord, in Genesis 30, I think it's Genesis 32, he's in this little wrestling match, and the Lord pins him, and he has him, and he hurts him. And he says to him, what is your name? What is your character? What is your nature? That's really what he's, that's what's in a name. I am Jacob. I'm a dirty, sneaky thief. That's what it means. Jacob means schemer. And what does the angel of the Lord say to him? No, you are Israel. You're my chosen one. You see, but you got to come to that point where you say, this is what I am. This is who I am. This is what I've done. I need your forgiveness. And in that moment, it's removed. And you become what God intends you to be. It's just an incredible work. That's grace. That's what grace is all about. And it's really sad that for these people, and Jesus really, in these following verses, Jesus really is trying to help these leaders understand that it's not about keeping the Sabbath. It's about meeting the needs of people. Isn't it sad that, that this guy who's suffering with this edema, edemia, that uh, he can't be healed on that particular day because his need and the Sabbath happened to hit at the same time when it could be, the need could be met. Oh, it's too bad for you. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's really... It, <laughs> and this is what was going on. But notice again uh, how Jesus, though he was being watched closely, they kept silent and they could not answer. And this is sort of what happens uh, when we get convicted by the Lord, this little, uh, we may be watching, we may be dealing with this issue of, of judgmental and, and being critical of others. But when the Holy Spirit and being in the presence of Jesus and being faced with the truth, they became silent. Their guilt became apparent. When you come face to face with God, you're silenced. You should be. We should be. We there's no way we can justify ourselves. We can't even answer him. But Jesus, as I said, wanted to set them free. So he, in his verses 7 through 14, he gave them a parable to help them with this. Verse 7. So he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast... Do not sit down in the best place, lest more, one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to be, take the lower place. But when you are invited, go sit down in the lowest place so that when you are invited, 
He who invited you comes that he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he also said to him who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends or your brothers or your relatives, your rich neighbors, lest they invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, and you will have be blessed because they cannot repay you. They shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Not only do we have a perception, a priority to understand in the kingdom, and that's people, or the priority, but we also have an attitude that we're to have as we approach the kingdom. And the, what Jesus is trying to communicate to these, because it, what's lying at the base of being judgmental is pride. And so Jesus is trying to show them and illustrate to them uh, that they're being controlled by that pride and it's being made manifest by the place they choose to sit. Because they had these seats, there were places of honor, high and low, and they would choose, as we read, uh, higher. Uh, But humility uh, is something that um, God seeks to work in us. It starts when we begin to confess uh, who we are before God. And, you know, when you think about humility it, it, uh, in relationships, it, if you have humility and you express that to your friends, it, it enhances the relationship. It produces friendship. And if you practice that with each other, um, there'll be respect. There'll be honor. And, and simply, probably the synonym for that would just be honesty. It's just being honest about who you are and who you're not. It's not thinking too highly of yourself, but on the other hand, the other extreme is to think more lowly of yourself than you actually are. And so true humility is really understanding the center of, of those two. To think more highly of yourself is wrong and to think lower of yourself. Sometimes we think that, oh, well, I can't do anything. I'm not capable of anything. I'm, I'm nobody. And, and we can kind of think by downplaying ourselves self-deprecation and all that that's actually humility but it's not it's pride in their other direction it's inferiority and superiority it's the middle ground of being honest is what uh, is important but we're taught by scriptures are we not to be honest we're taught by scriptures to humble ourselves proverbs 25 6 don't exalt yourself in the presence of a king and do not stand in the place of the great you know, understand your, your lane. Stay in your lane and learn your lane, right? 1 Corinthians one twenty six tells us who we really are because sometimes we don't really know who we are. Uh, where do we really fit, you know, in the social construct of everything? But thank God that he's uh, told us where we fit. I love this. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world that he put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, the base things of the world, the things that are despised, God has chosen, 
the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So you can classify yourself accordingly. I'm in several of those categories, actually. <laughs> not mighty, not noble, foolish, yeah, I'm kind of there. Weak, yeah. But we're called by God, and that changes everything. That changes it all. We're to restrain ourselves from self-projection is kind of the idea. That whoever exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. That's sort of a universal truth that we know that is inevitable when we see some of these sports guys. I mean, there's some seriously gifted athletes that we can watch participate in their sports. But when they get, begin to show off and do things, we think, oh boy, you start puffing up and somebody's going to come along and pop your little balloon <laughs> and, you know, it's going to be over for you. You just, something in us says we're not supposed to do that. And by God's grace, we learn. We're encouraged by scriptures to seek humility and refrain from pride and self-righteousness. Um, you know, when these guys be, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but when I see these guys prancing around, depending on whatever they've accomplished in their event, I have this little inner warning, this little alarm goes off. You shouldn't be doing that. You're going to get humbled. It may not be in the next five minutes, but you're going to get humbled. God doesn't like self-exaltation. You know, sometimes there is in our human nature, unfortunately, that uh, more subtle self-promotional uh, promotion that's not always recognized. And we want others to think, you know, that we're spiritual or we're this or we're that. And so we, we present ourselves in, in certain ways, uh, which is unfortunate, but um, we can grow, and we can repent, and we can become uh, what God wants us to be. There's um, a term that was coined by Charles Deber some time ago. It, it talks about uh, a trait of people who have a tendency to fall into the trap of uh, controlling a conversation. He calls them conversational narcissists. And if we're, you know, if you, when you have a conversation with someone, it's, an, it's like having a ball in your hand. You talk, and then you bounce the ball, and they catch it, and they talk, and you volley back and forth. That's really how uh, we're to conduct ourselves with one another, not be conversational narcissists. Um, you know, but people, sometimes they don't see it. They don't, they're not aware uh, that they do it. Um, uh, sometimes it's over the top. If you have to work the, with these people in the workplace, it, it can get pretty, pretty hard. And we need a lot of grace. But um, you've got to understand that a person who's caught up in that doesn't really see it that way. They don't understand it. Um, they want to talk about what they want to talk about, and they're really not paying attention to what you care about. And that's hard sometimes. You have to learn how to be sensitive. It's the etiquette, right? It's learning how to behave yourself, understanding that there are other people who have thoughts, needs. And I can't imagine uh, how Jesus would have handled situations like that, but I'm sure uh, it's a pretty pr prominent thing uh, throughout history. Uh, he goes on, he talks about 
here in verse 7, he first spoke to the group, the whole group, about being invited and about this self-exaltation. And then he talks directly to the guy who invited him in verse 12. And he says, you know, look, if you're going to do this, these are the people you need to invite. You don't be doing things so that you can get paid back because that's not really a humble. If you're truly a humble person, you give to others without thinking about having something returned to you. Now, the Bible does teach another thing that's inferred here, and that is the reward. At some point in time, when you stand before God and you give an account for your life, He's paying attention. He's got great accountants in heaven. They keep track of everything. Everything's written down. Everything about your life is, is all recorded. Now, that's kind of scary, isn't it? But it's true. All the good things that you've done, God's going to reward you for them. Now, I know that when you go about your life, you're probably not thinking about heavenly rewards, and that's probably a good thing. I don't think we should be uh, thinking about, oh, wow, I wonder what I'm going to get in heaven for this one, you know. We don't think that way. That's, that's weird. If you don't know, you want to confirm that? That's, that's, our focus really is to keep ourselves in the love of God. Keep, us, keep our lives and our attitudes in a place where God continue to continue to bless us and keep us. You know, to keep ourselves uh, undefiled uh, from the world, as it were. And keep ourselves in a place where we are continually expressing our love to God. That's what we should be concentrating upon. He goes on here in verses 15 through 24 uh, how important it is to hear this message of the kingdom. There has been an invitation sent out. The Holy Spirit is at work in this world. He has been sent into the world by God to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. It is a message that is delivered that you and all mankind have been invited to become part of his kingdom. And they, as we read here, uh, as they were at this, because this, this is the whole context, it's all tied together here. Verse 15, now one who had sat at the table with him heard these things and said, blessed is he who eats bread in the kingdom of God. And then he said to him in verse 16, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many. He sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. And I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I bought a five yoke of oxen and I am going to test them. And I ask you to have me excused. And still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes, lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded. And there is still room. And then the master said to his servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those who were invited shall taste of my supper. 
Now, in the near context here, there's, this has got to be a slam upon the Pharisees and the establishment and the nation of Israel because they have been invited. He is the Messiah. He's inviting them to join in the kingdom, and they're making excuses not to come. And so eventually, we know that that door is open to you and I, those that are in the highways, the hedges, those less acceptable, the Gentiles. The door was open to them and to, to you and to I. And so this, again, referring to the little reign of the Messiah, it'd be a time of, to be a time of great celebration, rejoicing. And they uh, were going to miss it. They wanted a Messiah after their own making. And this is what gets us into trouble, is that we have expectations from God. And if God doesn't meet those expectations, then we become angry and mad at God. We want it our way. But know this, that the invitations have been sent. The schedule has been set. Things are, all things are now ready. He's waiting for you. The, the, we are not waiting on God. He's waiting on us. Are we, and we have to respond to his invitation. Ben Franklin, who died in 1790 uh, in his collections of writings, his anecdotes and all, uh, was written about a young guy that came uh, back, came to him the following day after he had broken an appointment with Dr. Franklin. And he had a really flowery apology. And as he was proceeded, uh, Mr. Franklin said to him, my good, he interrupted him, stopped him, and he said, my good boy, say no more. You have said too much already. For the man who is good at making an excuse is seldom good at anything else. Whoa. That would have been hard to hear. But we've got to make sure we're not making excuses before God. It's really sad. You know, I've purchased some land. Look, I've got a, my future. I'm young. I'll get religious when I get older. My future is more important to me right now than going and receiving, taking advantage of the invitation. Well, I've purchased an ox. I must go and test these ox, these oxen. My business is more of more importance. It's, it's, it's the greatest thing in my life right now because I want to be able to provide for my family and myself. Well, I'm just starting my family. I just got married. I don't have time to sit around. I need to enjoy my wife, you know. You know, there's a good chance that all these things that these people were using as an excuse not to respond to the invitation could have all been taken care of another, at another time. Why would you miss the opportunity? Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow, you, you and I are not guaranteed tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Well, you know, I'll think about it. No. You need to open your heart and you need to get right with God now. Today is the day of salvation. It is the easiest thing to do if you will simply be, get honest with God and get real with God. Well, I'm afraid I can't walk the walk. I'm afraid I'll be a hypocrite. All kinds of Right now, my excuses may be flooding your mind why you can't completely surrender your life to Jesus. 
You might be listening by way of the internet. You might be wondering who he's talking to. Well, maybe it's the Spirit of God speaking to you right now to, to deal with this and to deal with him personally. It's very simple. Acknowledge that you are strayed, you have strayed from God, that you are not living your life for him. You are living for yourself. You're living for what you think is best. You're your own God. You've created your own God in your own mind and you live by your own rules. You're a self-made man and you're living in rebellion against God. But you must acknowledge that. Do you want to spend eternity out of his presence? That's what hell is. Hell was created for the devil and his angels, not humanity. People don't go to hell because God sends them there. People go there because they simply do not want God in their life. That's why people don't repent. I don't want God in my life. I want to live the way I want to live. I want to call my own shots. The problem with that is you have no way of dealing with sin. If you choose that path, please tell me how you deal with your guilt. How is it that you are relieved from your guilt when you live for yourself? It's impossible. You think your good works can atone for your sins? Well, if, if you're going to go that route, then you're going to have to be perfect. I've yet to meet anybody that's perfect. So that's futile. Living under the law, we can never please God. We'll always fall short. But if we simply humble ourselves as children and just be honest with God, Lord, I've walked away from you long enough. I want to turn my life around. I want to turn to you. That's what repent means. You're going away from God and you do a 180 and you start coming towards God, running to your Father, running back to the one who created you, asking Him simply to forgive your sins and to wash you clean. And you know what he does when you do that in sincerity? He forgives you. He writes your name in the book of life. And he gives you a confidence that when you close your eyes for the last time, you're going to see him face to face. And he will say to you, come, my son. Come, my daughter. This is the place I created for you. You're going to live with me here in this environment forever. I made it just for you. Do you want that kind of relationship with God? I hope so. So we give you an opportunity here at the end of the service to come forward and, and, and make that commitment to Christ. But let's finish up with what we have here. You see, the Jews were content to just simply enjoy the promised land. They were content to have the Bible. They were content with the knowledge of who Yahweh was. See, there's a lot of people that know all the facts about the Bible. They know historically of who Jesus was, but they don't know him personally. And this is one of the saddest words that could ever be uttered and heard by a human ear. Depart from me. I never knew you. You knew all about me, but you didn't know me. This is what we're talking about. We're not talking about religion. We're talking about a deep personal relationship where we concentrate our lives to God and we live our lives before him in surrender and we enjoy eternal life not 
in the future, but moment by moment, because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit to strengthen us and to guide us and to keep us on the highway of holiness. God wants his house to be filled. And so it's not only an invitation to the kingdom, there's a call beyond that that God has upon our lives, and it's called to be a disciple. He doesn't call us to be church attenders. Well, you know, I did my part this week. You know, I, I darkened the row, doors of the church, and I sat and I heard a sermon, and I did my thing with God, my God thing this week. When you become a disciple, you stop compartmentalizing your life. Every day is the day that you live as unto the Lord. The relationship becomes a priority. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Do you think Jesus is teaching us to hate our parents? It's obviously hyperbole. It's hyperbolic. Saying, look, your devotion to your family should not exceed your devotion to God. That is simply what Jesus is trying to communicate. He is priority one. He's a jealous God, and he will not allow us to serve other gods. That's what got Israel into trouble. They slipped, and they, they, they fornicated. They stole. They did bad things to one another, and God forgave them. But one of the most unforgivable sins is spiritual adultery. When you begin to worship other gods and put them before, that is offensive to God. He made us. He feeds us. He sustains us. And for us to worship false idols and demonic spirits is abhorrent to him. He requires complete surrender. Come to me, he says. The commitment to Christ is greater than all other commitments. Verse 27 says we're to bear our own, our own cross. Learning how to count the cost. Which, what does that mean? That means don't think it's going to be this bed of roses because you surrender your life and you become a Christian. I can tell you right now, if you surrender your life to Jesus, which is what you should do, and which some of you are going to, right? You're going to do this because it's the right thing to do. You're going to suffer. You're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to endure the mundane. You're going to learn to die to yourself. If a man come and follow Jesus, it's a call to death, death to self. You remove yourself from the throne of your heart and you allow God to sit on the throne of your heart and you consecrate your life to him. There is no other life apart from that. Most of the things are counterintuitive to us. They don't make any, the things of the kingdom don't make natural sense to us. Part of that is coming to the place where you no longer count your life dear to yourself. Well, I don't want to die. Well, nobody does, really. I mean, no. We have this thing within us that, like, we want to live. We want to stay alive as long as we can. There comes a point when you surrender your life to Jesus, you realize that he has the control over my breath 
that's in my lungs. He is in charge. My days are in his hand, and I no longer worry about it. Paul in Acts 20, 24 said, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself that I might finish the race with joy and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And that becomes our motto for our life. We don't count our lives dear to ourselves. God has a plan and a purpose for each one of our lives that is far greater than you can ever imagine. It's not about your future. It's not about your occupation. It's not about your marriage. It's about your relationship with God and living for Him and to, for His glory. And He knows how to make a person fulfilled in life. He's got a perfect plan for each one of us, but it takes humility. It takes the bending of the knees and a humbling of self to hear the voice of the Spirit. This is how he ends this bit here. He says, salt's good, but if salt has lost its flavor, how is it to be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear. What's so special about salt? Well, it was pretty valuable in ancient times. It was so valuable that the Roman soldiers would actually take payment in salt. And that's what we get our, the word salary comes from the word S-A-L, the Latin word sal. If a soldier was doing a lousy job, he might get his paycheck cut. And so the phrase we hear, he's not worth his salt, came about. Why do you think the Bible talks about you and I being the salt of the earth or the pillar of salt or the covenant of salt? Salt is a preservative. It's a flavor enhancer. It's a metaphor for permanency and a metaphor for conviction. We are the salt of the earth. This is what God happen, happens to us when God takes over your life. He puts eternity in your heart. He, he preserves us. We become the salt of the earth. Our lives in, become a flavor enhancer, so to speak. We make other lives better. Is that not what he said to Abraham? I will bless you and I will make you a blessing. You see, that's what salvation is about. It's not just about me and you being right with God. That's first and foremost, obviously. But it's about you becoming a blessing to first and foremost to Him. You become a blessing to God because you've righted the ship. You've made yourself right with God through confession. You become a blessing to others because now you know how to love them. You, know how to, you learn how to be others-centered and not self-centered. And your life encourages people. So don't lose your flavor this week. Be filled with the love and the grace of God. Relate to God on that basis of grace. If you lack and have great need, then cry out to God and allow Him to supply your need. Think about this. Think about the great and precious promises that God has left us. He that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we think or ask. Now, I don't know about you, but I got a feeling some of you got some really marvelous imaginations and you can think up some pretty cool things. But that's, think about what that scripture just said. He's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we think. 
God wants to bless you more than you want to be blessed. Refuse to relate to him on the basis of your performance and begin to relate to him on the basis of grace and your cup will never be dry. Your cup will run over with joy and peace. You'll be filled with the life from above and this is what it's all about. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, shall we pray. Father, we thank you for your word. You never shortchange us, Lord. You always give us what we need. We long to have our spirits graced by your presence daily. And so, Father, we want to give you this coming week and ask, Lord, that you would just go before us We ask that you would order our steps for the way that we should go is not within us. We want to live our lives before you in a pleasing manner, Lord. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you that we can come unashamedly to you, knowing that you'll wash us and cleanse us just like we do our children. When they get dirty and soiled, we wash them and clean them. You do the same with us, and we're so thankful for that sanctifying work of your spirit, God. We give you this week and ask that you would bless us, that we might truly be a blessing to you and to one another, Lord. In Jesus' name, shall we stand. For those who